This is episode 20 of Spokes with director, writer, and producer, Tyler Savino. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry, with your host, James Pizarro. Welcome to Director's Month here on Spokes. It's producer Christian welcoming you back to another great episode of our podcast. And if you didn't hear from last week or from social media, we are doing a whole month of directors, which means every week we're going to interview a different director and talk about their inspirations, talk about their processes, talk about their most recent works and kind of their experiences on set. And things like directing kids, directing a musical, even directing their first ever feature we're going to talk about um, all month long. So without further ado, let's head to our first guest. He just graduated from Bowling Green State University with a degree in film production. Uh, He owns Bucket Knot, which is a production company out of the Toledo area. And he just he's in post-production for a film he recently finished called The Cran. And you'll hear a lot about the behind the scenes of that on this episode, as well as why it would be considered a period piece, even though it's a more recent uh, setting, and everything else in between just about directing. So without further ado, here is director Tyler Savino. So, I mean, feel free, usually when, when, when you come on with these, everybody asks you, so how'd you get into film school and all that other stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think what's more interesting really is what, uh, what became your inspiration to make films? As far as I know, I was always kind of a storyteller. Um, to the point where I believe as a kid, I used to, I was really into the book Charlotte's Web and I would draw all the characters and then cut them out into like little paper outlines and then do a puppet show. Um, I would sit, sit my family down and perform the entire Charlotte's Web. Um, but the problem, and that here's how I knew that I was destined to be a director instead of just a writer or an actor. Um, I had only drawn the images on one side of the paper um, and I chose to point that side towards me so I could see the show that I was going on the, or sorry, that's so that I could see the show that I was putting on. Um, and as far as the audience was concerned, it was just blank pieces of paper floating around. <laughs> if, if that was ever a sign, huh? <laughs> that, yeah. That you needed him facing you. Yeah. So you, you did that for a while. Did you did you mess around with like um you know your phone or, or or other cameras and try to direct different things like plays or whatnot? Uh not really. I was a very imaginative kid, so we always had the we had a big backyard and we had that time to go out and oh the hammock's a time machine and the trees are dinosaurs and all that. Um, so that was really my medium. Um, and I didn't really latch on to film. Uh, so my dad always liked film. So I always had an interest in movies because of that. But filmmaking never really fell on my radar until after I had dropped out of college. Um, so college was a seven-year process for me. Um, I burned out the first year on broadcast journalism. Um, and then when I came back, I had already kind of landed in that zone where you're like, oh, I'm going to make the next sci-fi web series. Um, And then through taking film production courses, slowly kind of course corrected onto, I want to make human stories, narrative films, that sort of thing. Are you plugged into the kind of genre you like doing the most? I really like selfish people um, to the point where I'm, I'm willing to, and the crayon is an example of this. I love, films that flip the genre halfway through. Um, so, so far I've, I've been attached as a producer to two movies. One of them is kind of set up as a romantic human comedy that takes a little bit of a dark culty turn, that being The Cran. Um, and then the one that I'm just uh, starting to work on is another one that's very, it's kind of techno pulpy but then it turns into a horror movie around the midpoint. So how much, um, uh, so, uh, you know, kind of uh, springboarding off of that, how much do you mm-hmm. write ahead of time or are these just concepts in your head and then you eventually write a script? But what is your process? Uh, so the crayon is, I don't know how good an example the crayon is because it kind of took me by surprise a little bit. Um, but I was in the process of writing something else. Um, 
I had done my biggest, most complete short film uh, to date uh, this time in 20, 2018, I would say, was kind of something, it was very Lemony Snicket, very Wes Anderson. Um, it was this kind of cartoonish thing about characters fighting over inheritance. And there were there are parts of that that kind of found its way into the way I make movies, but overall, um, I kind of got disenchanted with the idea of creating caricatures for the screen. Um, and I really fell in love with really flawed people. Um, and you asked about genre before, I would not say no to doing, for instance, a sci-fi movie, but my sci-fi movie would be how the in alien invasion ruins the day of this guy who's trying to set up for his job interview or something like that. Um, I live and thrive on the stories that are created through the minute to minute bad decisions of the characters. Um, and the crayon kind of came about as a result of that because one of the byproducts of that kind of storytelling is that each scene is a reaction to the previous scene. Each line is a reaction to the previous line. So I sat down, I wrote a conversation, the conversation turned into a scene, the scene turned into five scenes. Um, and it took me about a year and 30 drafts to get a version of the crayon that was, you know, put together enough to attract the people that it attracted. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm already working on my next script um, while I'm editing the crayon so that those kind of points kind of converge. So when people say, hey, that was great, what else you got? I've got, actually, <laughs> this one's coming up. No, so uh, one of the other things uh, upon that, so you, you did write the script first and then you did, which I never believe in, uh, you know, it's always the umpteenth draft until it mm. actually becomes something that's even you know, doable or watchable. Then did you, uh, what was your process then? Did you go uh, find actors and did you do a table read? Did you do open auditions or how did that work? So here's where, here's where I kind of blur the line a little bit uh, between doing things right and doing things my way. Um, one, of, one of the first things I did uh, was I got a hold of the person that I knew I wanted to play my lead because I knew that because of the resources, because of the budget, it's ambitious, but it's still toned back. Um, and a lot of it is resting. The backbone of this film is this character bickering with this character, just like constantly. Um, and those two can never find any sort of good footing. But the more the more plot driving character, as opposed to the more reactionary character, was the one that I knew I wanted to get right. And I had a actress that I knew I wanted to work with. Marley Carpenter is wonderful. Um, and I came to her with probably half of the first draft. And I was like, this is your, this is the character I want to ease you into. Uh, and I'm going to come to you with each draft so that we can slowly but surely kind of blur that line between Marley and between Hannah is the character. Um, because I knew you can never have enough prep time when it comes to that. Um, I did my casting very, very early, probably a year before principal photography um, and had rehearsals basically monthly. Um, I kept my actors basically in the loop with every revision that I did and got their opinions on how does this affect where you were taking your character, things like that. Um, and it was really just kind of a slow personal process because one of the things that I really like to zero in on is there are the people who make movies for the money. There are the people that make movies for the, the glory, whatever you want to call it. And I count myself among the people that make movies for people, um, be it the audience that's getting a some sort of emotional reaction out of the project that you're creating. Um, the cast or crew members that are getting something out of being on your production or uh, to get really kind of inward. If I'm making something that's meaningful to me, then that's going to keep me interested in putting out the next project and the next project. 
I think that's great, though. So then you you developed your you de- developed your cast. When did you know you're ready to do principal photography? Did you need to uh, raise funding for this? Was it self-funded? And then you started to build from there. How did that work? Uh, I really didn't ever know that I was ready. Um, it was one of those cases where, because um, there's that window of time where you'll always want to push back your first day of shooting. Um, and then at one point, uh, I think I think we planned to push it back again and then something fell through and we could only get it that day. And so I was like, all right, let's buckle down. Let's do it. Um, but honestly, and this is, I'm my own worst critic, so I can't speak too much to this. Um, but a lot of the money and the names and the crew that came on board and worked as hard as they could for, you know, indie rates, um, a lot of people said it was the time that went into the script. It was the, the final product script that came out of the, you know, the months and months of just obsessing over every line. Um, but to answer your question, um, I did, I was able to use the script to attract one or two investors. Um, there was some help from friends and family. And then once, uh, Chase Crawford got on board. Uh, we put together a small crowdfunding campaign just to kind of pad us a little bit. Um, and I think we made about 5,000 out of that. Um, you can, you can edit out the numbers if you want to, but the crayon itself was about a $20,000 project. Um, and that was including bringing Joe Crest in for two days and, uh, getting rained out of a day and getting snowed out of a day. Um, so there was a lot of flexibility involved, but it's really just kind of knowing ahead of time what your means are, what your resources are, and making your movie work for you. And how critical is it to have a great producer on board, right? Uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, I mean, I will fully own up to the fact that the movie that, um, the movie that was finishing up this time last year with our first round of photography if that same movie had continued on with the same people attached to it that movie would not exist um it wasn't until because it's it's not just the people involved it's also you know things go wrong you have met less money than you think you have but then uh your producer comes in and says hey i know this person who will do this for this amount um and that problem solved. And then that person's that person that's got brought in is like, actually, I have a camera you can use. So, you know, <laughs> you start you start chipping away at your big monolith of problems until you've you don't ever like chisel that monolith down to nothing, but you can at least chisel like stair steps over it. When you're picking your crew, how much um, and you know, it's very important to to pick the right people, number one. And how much trust do you put into your director of photography um, or your you know, art, direct, uh, art director? Do you, are you the type of director who has to you know, um, manage everything? Or are you comfortable saying, hey, we picked this guy, I trust him. Uh, you tell him what vision you want and then you more or less either tweak or, or, or reject his, uh, his shot, Where are, or his or her shot. Where are you with that? Where do you lie? Uh- Honestly, it kind of depends on the relationship. Um, so to use a to use an example, um, one of the one of the major problems with the summer shoot was the director of photography, and that was a case where um, he kind of saw this movie as like a like a moody Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and I kind of at that point saw it something more like a Martin McDonough or a Edgar Wright or a Taika Waititi. Um, so the, there was that kind of clash of ideas and that feeling that I had to keep like double checking dailies uh, to make sure that I had what I needed. Um, that that director of photography, eh, words, sorry. That director of photography was ultimately one of the people that got replaced um, in the transition over to the winter shoot. And the person that I sat down with, uh, I sat down for coffee with uh, Chris Leskowitz, um, who's fantastic, fantastic filmmaker. And 
he he and I sat down and like the first words out of his mouth were, okay, I see Martin McDonough, I see Edgar Wright, and I see um, Taika Waititi. Um, and that's that's when I knew that I could then not have to keep looking over my shoulder um, with that project. So where I land is be in a place where you can trust your directors, or sorry, um, so where I land on that is be in a place where you can trust your crew, trust your department heads, but also fight like hell to get to a place where you can. No, I think that's, uh, it's, it's critical to have the right crew. And, uh, I think you only know that by working through these films and there, there's that balance who's willing to go to uh, work for you for basically, like you say, indie rates or, mm. or no rates. I, I, you know, these kind of projects are always, uh, a combination or hybrid of passion versus, uh, you know, very little funding. That's just that's that's just how it is until mm -hmm. until you develop that. Um, so you did get to post then. I I I, I, I what was your process after that? You know, obviously the third part of movie making is yeah. uh, is the final you, rewrite. <laughs> the final rewrite, right? So how is that going? And uh, what, where are you with that? So I'm very happy with how things are going. Obviously, things were slowed down in the past couple months. Um, uh, I'm working with uh, Brent Howard lives out in LA. He does a lot of work for trailers and he does a lot of freelance editing work. Um, he came on as I think an assistant camera over the summer and then didn't, wasn't able to come back out uh, for winter, but stayed on as my co-editor. Um, so that's kind of what we've been working on um, over the summer. Um, I think we're like, I hesitate to say lock picture because, you know, he and I are really the only people that we're inconveniencing if we tweak something. Um, but it's, it's coming along. I'm hoping to have something presentable um, probably by the end of summer to be able to at least sit down with the investors and the producers and say, here's what you paid for. <laughs> That's great. Now, yeah. now, are you doing this remotely where you're sending EDLs or XMLs back and forth or a little bit? Yeah. Um, so he's got a, he's got a hard drive with the files. I've got a hard drive with the files and we just send the project file back and forth. That seems to make sense. It's just very efficient, right? Anymore. Mm -hmm. That's just the way to go. So are you also involved in the, uh, which I know you're involved, but how are you handling the scoring and, you know, sound design as well as the grading um, and, and basically the look of the film? So it's a combination of kind of, our past couple conversations. Um, on one hand, I am very reliant on people that I happen to know, people that I have connections with who are willing to do some of those things for me. Uh, but at the same time, I thought it was funny that you mentioned um, when we were talking about department heads, um, one, of, one of the things that I flex to um, whenever I'm not directing my own project is art direction. Uh, I've got a production design studio in the back. Um, and I'm, I'm just one of those people that, um, I don't know whether I just have the extra free time that other people don't, but I can sit down for 24 hours and, uh, take online classes and practice and practice and get really good at poster design. And then that's something I can sell myself as doing poster work for, um, so kind of in that way, I'm able to, uh, it's kind of like renovating a house. Um, like you're not going to try to replace the roof yourself. That's something that you have to pay somebody to do. But like if the molding on the wall is like an inch too long, you're like, oh, I can knock that out. That's no problem. Um, so there, there is some of my skill set that translates well, and there's a lot of a lot of Brent's skill set that translates well into this. Um, thankfully, he is uh, kind of an audio wizard, and I am not, because um, sound is the big killer of productions. That's where films go to die, right? Bad sound, mm -hmm. for sure. Do you yeah. do you feel that? Um, so obviously, you watch a lot of content. I mean, I think we all mm -hmm. do, and uh, we derive some inspiration from it. You know, I mm -hmm. also notice that. Um, there are people who, you know, you don't need, how can I put it? You don't necessarily need the top flight equipment. You need, uh, I think, art direction and great acting. And obviously your story will trump all that. And uh, how, how do you feel that plays into where you're, where you're, uh, 
where you are. I've seen so many films that you can just tell off the get that um, this looks indie, right? Mm. And it, and they use the exact same camera, right? Mm. Or they use the exact same lensing, but they didn't spend any money in art direction. How, mm. what, what is your philosophy on that? Uh, well, I absolutely agree with you, actually, about the um, the idea that there are things that can make or break a film that are really things that kind of get overlooked. Um, a lot of people, uh, especially in the indie scene, kind of conflate director, producer, and even cinematographer into one thing. And as a result of that split focus, something's going to give. Either the visuals are going to fall short, but the acting's going to be okay, or the visuals are going to be nice and crisp and you're going to use the right camera, but um, you spend all your you spent all your cast money on camera. Um, so the, so the actors are people that you were able to pull at short notice. Um, or even, uh, if you want to get a layer deeper than that, um, maybe you did get your camera, maybe you did pay your actors, but that money came out of craft services. So the actor is in a really bad mood that day and is not giving their same performance. There's a million things that all have to be on point. Um, and I find that as long as you have the story to tell, as long as people care about the story that's being told, um, people will forgive a wonky shutter angle. People will forgive... Like soft focus or the lighting yeah, maybe yeah, so wasn't perfect. I mean, I see a lot of features that get out and yeah. you know they totally missed the focus. But Forgive if half of your movie was shot on a red and half of your movie was shot on a black magic. Nobody what cares. People, Nobody what people cares. won't forgive is if you unapologetically waste two hours of their time <laughs> and, and possibly and possibly fifteen dollars of their money and they'll write about that and rave about that forever unfortunately mm -hmm. well that's so the now uh, a lot of us as i as i uh, asked you before you find a lot of inspiration in um in, in films you see and i'll ask mm -hmm. you about that but what are the non-film uh, inspirations uh, around your environment that you try to derive an inspiration from like what are what are the things that that um inspire you by just you know through your daily life uh that's kind of a threefold um so i grew up every member of my family is a different kind of artist um so my parents are both visual artists uh my siblings are musicians stuff like that um so i kind of grew up with a background in visual art and the ability to translate i was also homeschooled so i kind of grew up with the ability to translate concepts like english and math and stuff like that into into some semblance of visual representation um and then the other part of that is I happened to go to a uh, high school for the arts here in Toledo. Um, and that again was, here's a math class and the school project, like the, your math project is put on a play about equations or something like that. Um, so there's really, that's one of those skills that I developed very early on was the idea of being able to translate something into a visual medium. Um, to look at this abstract, like you're reading a book and you can vaguely picture the characters and you see the voices and stuff like that. Um, and then being able to take that and nail every detail on a frame is a completely different skill set. It really is. And so your, your strength then is being able to at least translate it. Do you think that's derived from you being uh, homeschooled and and I, at least my 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 vision is that is you had you had to really come up with your own um, ideas or entertainment. Your 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 school your schooling was less formal, so to speak, and maybe a, yeah. lo a lot more latitude to be creative. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that obviously it was something that you derived from from the homeschooling experience? I think so. It was. It, you're right in that it was very child led. Um, so the result is I know basically everything there is to know about dinosaurs and i am like perpetually a grade behind in math <laughs> something like that um but yeah um there's there's definitely um i will say that kind of the process of that is there's a lot of internal because when you're homeschooling there's a lot less like come up on and show everybody what you did up on the blackboard um so one of the things I'll have to catch myself on as a director is 
just kind of assuming that people can see inside of my head. Um, and sometimes I'll have to stop and take the time to say, okay, here's the storyboard. Here's uh, this list. Good thing I'm good at lists. <laughs> I think you have to be in this in yeah. this business. Are now are you a storyboard person or do you, do you I am, kind of yeah. at least I, good? So how does that tell me how uh, do you write every I mean, is every scene storyboarded and tell me how that works? It, it depends on the scene, honestly. So a lot of my scenes are dialogue. Um, and then there are, there are other scenes where um, two men in chimpanzee masks are firing weapons off the back of a pickup truck. Um, and then uh, I also, on top of that, I also have a bit of a background in um, like uh, effects and com compositing. So there's also another layer of, okay, and here are the storyboards for where the green screens are gonna go and where the tracking markers are gonna go and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of prep work that gets done, but I would say there's a lot of prep work that has to get done, but it's not the worst thing in the world if not every page of that makes it to set. Um, because if you can use that as a stepping stone for you and your department head to get onto a better idea, then you can leave that packet at home and that's five minutes saved on production that you don't have to go through pages looking for okay what was page 54 shot 52 <laughs> um, that's always the hardest part for yeah. sure do you find that uh if when you're when you're going through your day are you, do you i i know the answer but what is your process in trying to be an efficient director and uh you know are you a fincher type person where you need 75 takes before you you get what you want or are you somebody that says I know what I want. I know how to motivate my actors. And, you know, how, what is your process through the day to keep it moving? A, because, you know, you have, I feel sometimes when you're running a set, you have to keep everybody engaged. I'm, I'm even talking PAs all the way up to your, your lead. It just helps to ha feel like you're an energetic person to get through that. What is your process? Well, I'm definitely energetic. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned that because I think, and this, this is, a product of my working with Chris and absolutely a product of me um, working so intently with my actors. But I don't think we went above six takes for a shot. Um, and in a lot of cases, um, essentially, essentially the process was these, these people have had a year of prep. They don't need to stop and start. Let them run the scene, pick an angle, get that change the angle run the scene again there you go i think that's um, do you think that's due to your preparation or pre-production and you know mm -hmm. you know there's always a degree of tweaking during the day but mm -hmm. obviously people should not be learning their lines or, or figure out what their motivation is on the day mm -hmm. of um do you think it's a tribute to being able to organize that and having uh table reads and whatnot before you run these scenes i wouldn't even say that. I think it's just a tribute to trusting the people that you're putting in those roles. Um, because Marley uh, was so close to Hannah, um, I really, half the time my note was give me something that I don't know I'm looking for. Why did you choose that era the, the, um, in the 2000 setting? What? Oh, <laughs> oh the, uh, the, the flip phone era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, exactly the flip phones. Um, I like the idea of landing kind of in a, in a time frame where not everything is solved in your pocket. Um, cause there are so many, so many of the plot points that would be shot full of holes. If your iPhone could like ping where your location was or, uh, automatically notify the police if you got in trouble or any number of the things that technology can do right now. Um, there's a certain there's a certain degree of um, kind of the technological limitations of the time, but then there's also kind of an absurdist degree where, like, when when you think about a period piece, uh, you immediately think about either Jane Austen or 1980s, but nobody really thinks of like early 2000s <laughs> um, because that one you just pick, right? Yeah. Um, but it also it also works for the characters. The the two, um, I know you guys have said you've done some research on the crayon, but the, sure. um, the story follows two people who 
reconnect after high school and it's been seven years. Um, and the result is you have people because for instance, Hannah essentially left the night of senior prom, ran away from home, spent however long on the road, never really grew out of those social cues that say, okay, maybe who I was as a senior in high school is maybe a little overdramatic. Um, and as a result, when she comes back, she's, she's very, like she's withholding what they're doing from Roy for the fun of it or for the attention. Um, and that way, so you can kind of keep the audience wondering what's going on. But in a movie that's essentially Bonnie and Clyde, where Clyde has no idea what's going on, um, you you answer that question of, okay, why, like, he would catch on at this point. What was your inspiration for it? And, you know, as far as even title or, or just a concept? Uh, the crayon was just nonsense. Um, I like the, the word, so I turned it into a county, um, Cranwell County. Right. Um, but the story itself, um, I would say it's kind of loosely based off of past experience, but not to not to the extreme degree that you see. Um, I like to one of the things I like to say is, um, and that this is not some sort of like sudden bomb that I'm dropping in regards to me as a filmmaker. Um, but the crayon in particular has one backbone and that backbone is how people cope with the idea of abuse um, and each character represents a different kind of person in that in that spectrum um, and the the concept itself is purely kind of boxed into the crayon but i'm finding that carrying on into my next project where everything's based on well in this case the script is about what happens like the the balance of that relationship between friend and coworker and you know person that you need to count on so where uh when do you think you how close are you to uh, to actually getting a uh, you know a, a, at least a a version out uh, so you can uh, you know show your at least your producers um and uh Financers, but when do you think uh, it'll be out? I know it's a tricky time right now. Everything got pushed back. Um, yeah. <laughs> everything got pushed back. Yeah. Uh, uh, where are you uh, in, in that process? Chase put you up to this, didn't he? No, he didn't. <laughs> oh. uh, well, I, th I think I mentioned um, we're currently in the process of uh, we've more or less got got a version of the picture we're happy with, but it's right. still the raw files and five layers of audio and like the lav that doesn't work layered in with the boom that does work. So it all sounds like it doesn't work. That's never happened. Um, never, you, you've never had a sound problem ever making a film. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're currently working on the sound design right now and cleaning up the audio. Yeah. But once that, once that's cleared up, um, it's just kind of a mad dash to the finish. Um, I'd like to have something uh, showable, screenable to private parties probably by early to mid fall. And then from there, it's a process of uh, handing it off to see, see where it can go from there. It's one thing to make a movie. It's even one thing to put it in the editing suite, but gosh, to let it go and, and feel like, oh, it's perfect as it is, is, is a totally another, uh, another issue. What did you learn? And then this is a loaded big question, but what have you learned a major lesson from making this film and going through this process that you wish you would have known earlier and you would have implemented. Is there any one overriding thing? Uh, so one of, one of my favorite things that I like to say that I guess kind of ties into this is make all your mistakes first. Um, so in my case, I got a hold of every 48 hour film festival that my, uh, that my college put on and I just kind of, went with my dumbest ideas. Um, the stuff that I knew that if I didn't get this out now, that five years down the line, I would convince myself that it's a $100,000 idea. Um, like, I'm pretty sure I did a short film where I was just assembling a veggie burger. Um, and, but once, once you get to the crayon, um, 
I'd, I'd say largely the same thing. Like I got very lucky that um, I made the choices I did between summer and principal photography, because if I had just kind of, let, let's say, let's say we had pushed back um, those, those early days um, and they got lumped into the rest of principal that and they got lumped into the rest of principal photography. Um, those mistakes would have happened at the worst possible time. They would have happened on the day where we had an entire cult army out in uh, 15 degree weather with a, the actor from Stranger Things like standing off to the side draped in a turquoise sheet um, just to keep himself, you know, free from the wind. Well, how was, uh, how was that working with a pro or somebody who had had probably a lot of experience on bigger film sets or bigger budget projects? Um, how was that? It was, it was really something interesting. Um, so I did not, so as a director, um, so kind of, kind of just to backtrack a little bit, um, the relationship I had with Chase Crawford for this project was he was in the middle of a bunch of things and he really liked the script. Um, he always but is in the middle of a bunch of things. He, yeah. He, he really liked the script um, and essentially signed on and said, hey, uh, I'll executive produce for you. Um, and then what we worked out was that I was, I was going to be the primary producer for the film. Um, and he would basically be constantly in my ear, um, kind of guiding me on that process um, so that once we hit production, I could I could pick up steam and really really kind of fill in the gaps, um, but the acquisition of Joe um, was something that just kind of like I was very surprised. <laughs> we had because um, we had we had another SAG actor that um, was kind of he was interested in it, but he was working on a different project. Um, during our shooting schedule. So we kind of had all the paperwork filled out, but at the same time, you know, all dressed up, nowhere to go. Um, so, so he shot me a couple names and I looked at him and I pointed at one. I was like, I think he'd be good. And then a week later, um, I got an email saying, Hey, he likes the script. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was just boom, 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 boom. And I could not recreate that process if I tried um, in terms of just trying to, process through like all the steps that happened but um we got everything squared away like the week of production um the process took a couple months and um yeah he just showed up and he he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew exactly the performance he was gonna give and like i like i mentioned before i'm the type to just kind of step back and let somebody surprise me and i was very pleasantly surprised. Um, so we we shot through two days of that, and um, he got back on his jet and flew back home. And uh, it was it was really an experience. Um, That's fantastic. Did uh, what, yeah. how many days of principal photography did you initially have? Because there's always pickup days. But what did yeah. you a lot for, quote unquote? So we had twelve days planned in January. Mm -hmm. um, of those, our last day was cut short by a snowstorm. Um, Joe was on board for like day three and four. Um, and that, that was the bulk, that first week was the bulk of our kind of big stuff. And then uh, the original plan was to sh shift over, give people a day off and then do night shoots for a week. Um, but luckily the, uh, the schedule kind of shifted and we got stuff ahead of schedule and stuff like that to the point where we were really just able to focus in on the on the bickering i guess um because there are there are there are plenty of scenes that really just require that timing and that snarkiness to be right without feeling forced it i mean it's a whole thing and and you know, I, I, so do you consider yourself more of a, an actor's director or are, 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 do you pretty much are able to balance it with, 
with uh, the overall kind of vision of the film. Where, where, where do you lie? Where do you lie toward? There's always a kind of a bias there. Where do you think mm-hmm. you're at? And I think I'm going to go back to my previous soundbite and say, say <laughs> you were always like, going to go back to that. Okay. Yeah. I, all right. Yeah, well, well the, I'm, Fair I'm enough. going back. Well, <laughs> different, maybe a different soundbite. The thing I said about being a, uh, a people's director. Right. Um, and the idea of, so I love my stories. Um, and those will always, if I handed a script to somebody and said, read this, they would get some sort of reaction out of it. Um, to that degree, like, I like to think that if I spent a year preparing with somebody and then they dropped out a week before that I could, I could recast and get something up and running. We, we had something, we had something like that um, a couple times over the course of pre-production, but it was never, it was never down to the wire. It was, um, I think in one case, um, some, somebody dropped out for uh, like the, the distance, like, the numbers weren't adding up as far as, you know, coming across a state and um, what they were getting paid and the, just the, the level of the production. Um, and we were luckily able to immediately reach out to somebody and get them on board and it turned out very, very well. Um, and then another person ended up basically getting their dream job elsewhere. Um, and that that was that instead was a case where I took a person that I already had cast in the production and essentially promoted them. Um, but in, in both cases, um, I'm very almost infuriatingly the kind of person that's just like, it'll all work out. Um, Cause there's no, I mean, to a certain degree, there are things that you do in, production while you're on set to make things happen. I got a cough, hang on. (coughs) Sorry. Um, To a certain degree, there are things that you do to make production happen. But at the same time, you are never going to have full control of your production. And the people that try to are the ones that burn out on day two. Um, Agreed, you've got to go with that flow. Yeah, and there's there's no point whatsoever in pulling in an all nighter the night before a shoot. Um, you got to get your sleep. You got to make sure that you're eating and hydrating. Um, you got to make sure that you're constantly checking in with your people, saying I appreciate you, thank you. Um, because in a lot of cases, um, especially with crew, so so cast is one thing. Especially if you bring them in early, they understand the story. They understand the importance to you. But for for a crew that's coming in, like, yeah, I'll, I'll work for a couple hundred bucks for this day. Um, they probably haven't read the script. They don't have any idea if this project's going to be good, if it's going to be bad. They don't have a no skin off their backs if it's either. Um, so you've got to kind of reach out to those people and say, hey, you're doing a good job. You know, though, uh, what's your philosophy on that? Because sometimes I think I've, I've uh, been in both sides where mm-hmm. if if I feel an educated crew or somebody who is at least has an idea of the script, I really urge them to read the scene. Like when you're sitting around, know what we're doing because you understand. So you understand my motivation and you'll you'll be more um if not just uh, physically invested, emotionally invested in what's happening on screen. And you might just say, you know what, I, if it's your cam op, I'm, I might just film them. I might just frame them a little bit different because I know what my director wants and this will help. And yeah. then that's how you make the film better. And that's why I, I always urge and I try to brief my, uh, my crew that, hey, th- this film, I mean, this is the scene, this is the motivation. You have to understand why we're doing this because there's nothing worse than you see them standing around. They don't they're not anticipating anything, right? And mm-hmm. and that's why I think uh, that's critical. Do you, do you do you really do you try to uh, uh, at least brief these guys? Like, is your process in the beginning of the day just to say, all right, here's what here are the scenes where we need to get through today? How do you handle that? Uh, well, to kind of to kind of fit, find a middle ground there, um, I 100% will always like I want my department heads, my DP, my art director. Um, to know the story as well as the actors know it. Um, especially especially for something like The Cran, where very few shots are locked down. It's all 
shoulder rig and it's all following the action, um, that's particularly important. Um, as far as as far as the crew, so for instance, the camera crew, um, what I what I stress is department head knows it really well, and then a department head is also able to effectively communicate what needs to happen. Um, so in a lot of cases, um, especially especially in the indie filmmaking scene, um, when you know locations aren't pre you know pre-built stuff like that um a lot of what you have to do on the day is reconcile what your hack actors what you have to do on the day is reconcile what your actors have learned already with the new circumstances with the new location what what the blocking is going to be um things like that um and i've been in a position where I've, you know, gotten really in depth with the, uh, uh, with the costume designer about, okay, here's, here's how, here's why this color red is important in this scene. Um, uh, but invariably I'll always get pulled aside by my, uh, AD and say, Hey, you need to focus. Um, so I'm one of those. <laughs> so what, what, you know, the, beside the film, what are you doing now? And uh, do you have projects on the launch pad? And uh, tell me a, a little bit about uh, Bucket Knot. Yeah, uh, well, Bucket Knot is, um, it started off as just kind of your boilerplate name, like every film student has their, I'm going to be, you know, purple real films or, you know, pick, pick uh, adjective and a noun and put the word films at the end and you know every student has one um but what i kind of realize is i am adamantly against the idea of devoting my life to a nine to five job to enable a film hobby um but what i will do is um what i will do is take on film work to enable my film hobby um, so one, one of the things I mentioned a while ago was that I tend to amass weird skills, um, be it storyboarding, be it, uh, digital compositing, be it fight choreography, pick something. Um, and those are a lot of skills that if somebody at the indie level wants a movie that includes one of those things, they need to reach out to a specialist in that field. And that specialist is usually the only one in the state because Ohio film um, and they they can essentially you know their schedule and their budget um, can make or break a project um, so kind of what I like doing is so I always have my films I, I'll have the crayon I'm working on a feature um, that I'm executive producing uh, out in Indianapolis and that one's called Eviscerate Me uh, that's the one I mentioned that's kind of like a pulpy turns into horror kind of thing. Nice. Um, and then I'm obviously working on the script for my next project after that. Um, but in the meantime, I like the idea of eventually getting a production space. I like the idea of being able to, you know, have my collection of gear not to the level of like some of the DPs that I've worked with. Um, but if I can get my own camera, if I can get my own tripod, if I can get my own sound recorder, then if I feel so inclined to do a short film over the weekend, uh, I'm not beholden to, you know, XYZ gear. Because I don't religiously follow like tech specs and stuff like that, um, and I put so much value in the story, um, I am able to basically say I'm not gonna swamp myself with a bunch of you know plastic things that I'm never gonna use and I can just get what I need to uh, film a crowdfunding campaign film a short film film a promo video whatever whatever I would need to do personally or for a client and then for my features I can reach out to a DP and say hey what you got um, That's awesome. So as far as Bucket Knot goes, we're kind of geared at um, not so much the commercial side of things. Um, 
like a lot of the clients that we do have are filmmakers um, and not businesses looking for a commercial. A lot of our clients are uh, non-commercial uh, filmmakers. And that's really kind of where we're gearing is really supporting indie film in the area um, while building our connections, while uh, building our pool of resources for, you know, the next, the next project and the next project. Yeah. So uh, Tyler, where can we find you? Uh, well, Bucket Knot and The Cran and myself, um, we're all on social media in varying capacities. And if you can find one of them, you can probably find the others. Um, I'm on Instagram mostly as Savino the Savino. Um, my last name is spelled with a V. And the Cran film is up anywhere you can find social media. Um, Eviscerate Me film. I just, I take the title and I add film to it. Um, but, uh, and then Bucket Knot. Um, we have a, we have a website, bucketknot.com. We have Bucket Knot on social media and we also have an email, uh, bucketknot at gmail.com for anyone interested in uh, professional work, poster design, six foot tall, uh, monster puppet, whatever. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode today. We'd like to thank Tyler for coming on and talking about his couple projects. The Cran is scheduled to come out this fall again if you didn't hear it before. And we're really excited to see it, especially with the uh, genre twist and all the other uh, stuff that they had to go through in terms of production, refilming, uh, dealing with a couple actors who only had limited days. So just a little bit of insight into uh, filming these features. So that's it, and uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Again, we're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and uh, if you want to learn more about us or about the podcast, please go to redbicyclemedia.com. Remember to follow us on social media at redbicyclemedia. James is on Instagram as jtpredbike, and I'm on Instagram as c underscore piz23. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care.